Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome. I am August Baker. Today, the new book we're talking about is The Belief in Intuition, Individuality and Authority in Henry Bergson and Max Shaler, University of Pennsylvania Press, 2021. I'm pleased and honored to be speaking with the author, Professor Adriana Alfaro of the Mexican Autonomous Institute of Technology. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much for the invitation. I wanted to start with, uh, this is a kind of strange quotation, but it's from a book by um, Bennett Berger, The Survival of a Counterculture, 1981, University of California Press. He's talking about the ubiquity of the term mind-blowing in the vocabulary of the counterculture says uh, it was broadened to include a variety of experiences that shook up one's an ordinary psychology and that in blowing one's mind revealed some of the tacit assumptions on which one's ordinary organization of understanding was based. He also noted that it was first used to refer to powerful drug experiences, but eventually it had that wire. And I was thinking here that this is um, what you were doing. I, I felt kind of mind blowing in the sense of going back to uh, these authors, Bergson and Shaler, and looking at some different ways of seeing things that maybe have gotten kind of lost in time, but we go back and think, oh, that's a very different way of looking at things. Such your understanding of the, the project of intellectual history here? Um, it, sorry, you mean um, uh, the, the, the point of going back to these authors yes. and you know, recuperating some lost? <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, so I guess uh, from the perspective of the history of uh, political thought, um, uh, Brixana Shaler's relative uh, absence uh, in contemporary debates is a symptom, I think, uh, of political philosophy having forgotten some important alternatives it did not take, and perhaps could not take uh, after the decisive wars of the 20th century. I'm thinking especially uh, about their emphasis on personal authority, uh, which, as I see, represents an alternative to Weber's charismatic authority. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was very, you know, very uh, a difficult subject after the world wars in the 20th century. Right. I'm also thinking about um, lively and candid, perhaps, approach to metaphysics and morals, um, untainted by the suspicion, the distrust, and the wariness uh, that characterizes many of the philosophical schools of the late 20th century after the wars, such as uh, post-structuralism, post-modernism, mm-hmm. genealogy, all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. so, which I really appreciate and respect and learn from, but still. Um, the book, I, th- I think, is an effort to recover key elements uh, uh, within, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, 
ways of thought or roots of thought that were available before the wars and mm-hmm. to show how that uh, enriches our present discussions. Understood. That, that sounds, that, that uh, agrees with my understanding. Um, you start, and of course the book is called The Belief in Intuition. And I think that comes from a quote that you start with from Hannah Arendt, the, who said that Bergson was the last philosopher to believe firmly in intuition. So uh, tell us about intuition in philosophy. It doesn't seem like something yeah, that a philosopher would be um, uh, you know, espousing or saying was important. Yeah, so um, perhaps we can, I mean, the, the word or the notion of intuition is, is actually used in, in philosophy, actually in contemporary philosophy, in political philosophy, which is where I work or where I normally move. Um, but it could be, it, it's, it's useful perhaps to distinguish the way Bergson and Shaler understand intuition from other uh, ways in which it is, uh, the term is understood in, in philosophy and also in everyday language, right? In everyday language, we say, I have the intuition, I don't know, that uh, someone to me say uh, in order to say that I have the hunch or the feeling that that is the case but uh, even if I don't have any uh, evidence I about it really explain why I just yeah sense this yes right right uh, or more philosophically speaking uh, so and this is the way in which Rawls John Rawls a political philosopher uses uh, the word intuition uh, in order to to um, uh, identify convictions or judgments about the morality of particular actions. So for instance, the the conviction that uh, all human beings are morally equal, that's a Mm. sort of moral intuition, something that we uh, like, yeah, a conviction or perhaps, as I said, a judgment about the morality of a particular action. Um, Mm. Or perhaps as uh, people called uh, ethical intuitionists use the word uh, as, you know, self-evident moral propositions. Again, uh, it's it's wrong to kill somebody else, right? Something like that. Um, Kant also uses the word to refer to uh, a representation, something that we cognize uh, and then tie to a concept. So for instance, this microphone that I have in front of me, uh, I, I cognize the microphone, I have the intuition of the microphone, I connect it to the concept microphone. So all those uh, alternatives are not the way in which uh, Bergson and Scheller use the word intuition. So for them, uh, intuition is, first of all, a human ability, or perhaps uh, better put, a human power. Um, it is distinct uh, uh, both from um, uh, reason and sensibility because it's, it's an ability or power that addresses something that is neither rational nor sensuous, right? So um, the way Bergson uh, puts it sometimes is that intuition aims at something ineffable and immaterial, something that slips away uh, the philosopher's attempt uh, to see it and grasp it. And um, what is that that slips away? What is the object of intuition is understood as an ability or a power. Um, So in the book, what I want to say is that uh, intuition uh, translates in both of them. I mean, there are differences, but uh, first into a a certain conception of freedom, a certain conception of individuality, and a certain conception of authority that um, we should be interested in exploring. So that's that's what intuition means for them. Okay. Um, Let's start with... uh... In, um, let's start with individuality. Um, they, as I understand it, uh, offer a defense of 
sorts of individuality or they like individuality. And I think a lot of listeners are probably thinking, oh no, individuality, that's going to talking about rugged individualism and that's hardly what we need. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does, how are they defending individuality and, and how, what does that have to do with intuition? Yeah. So uh, perhaps I can um, say something about person first uh, mm-hmm. here. Uh, individuality has to do with, in, in his case, uh, with what he takes as the primary datum of experience, which perhaps some of your listeners um, uh, are familiar, perhaps others are not, uh, is movement and change, right? Um, so for Bergson, that's the, the primary uh, experience of like that, that we have, right? And that means that uh, our our, our um, experience of our inner reality is uh, is like that as well. So uh, movement and change uh, means that our inner self is primarily multiple. And that makes it, uh, you know, difficult to grasp and difficult to define or to, you know, anchor to some definite, yeah, some definition. Mm-hmm. So uh, for could him, I, yeah. Could I interrupt? Um, I, Right. And when I originally thought about inner multiplicity, I thought, oh, that will mean, you know, that we have different drives that are conflicting, but it's really not that at all. Um, It's a lot more complex than that. I wondered, um, before you get to Sheila, I'm going to finish on Bergson, Mm -hmm. but I I was very interested in this idea of the cinematographic illusion. Can, but continue on with no no i mean actually what, what i was going to say it's uh, directly it's it's really directly related to that so okay. uh, it's uh, as you said it's not about drives it's not about you know uh, uh, and in that sense it's not a freudian mm-hmm. conception of the self or a humian conception of the self about you know the bundle of sensations or whatever so it has to do with time it has to do with um, uh, uh, the centrality of the notion of duration and time in Bergson for an adequate comprehension of individuality. Um, so uh, precisely due to the importance of time in Bergson thought, in order to understand his theory of individuality, it's important to say something about his theory of memory um, and uh, the role that the brain plays in it. So according to Bergson, uh, Bergson's theory of memory, um, the past never disappears. It is constantly there and it's never dead, but on the contrary, uh, prone to constant transformation. So what he calls a cinematographic illusion uh, is uh, the the idea that the that that the past disappears, right? Like the images of a film disappear from the screen, and for Bergson that is wrong. The past doesn't go away. Uh, he says instead, uh, he he proposes that the past duplicates the present incessantly. Um, and so his view is that the past is preserved in its entirety. And the job of the brain is not to remember, but to forget, right? To stop perceiving what is past. This what is, is not what I present. mean by blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, keep, keep going, yes. Okay, so, okay. so what does, does that mean? I mean what, what does it mean to say that the, the past does not disappear? So it, it's surely not the case that he has any hopes of humanity eventually being able to travel in time or something like that, right? So um, 
uh, Bergson's idea is that um, we stand uh, in, in at the bottom of a corner of this sort of inverted uh, cone, right? That, that he calls it the cone metaphor. And this cone represents the constant accumulation of the past. At each one of the levels of this cone, we find the totality of the past. So it's not that, you know, the, the base of the cone is like the remote past or whatever. So mm -hmm. at each level, we find the totality of the past, but at different degrees of contraction or expansion. So he says that uh, more specifically, the cone displays different levels of consciousness uh, at which we experience different ways of relating to our past, more pragmatic, more direct, or more uh, convoluted or, you know, complex. Um, and uh, for Bergson, the only possible access that we have to individuality is by digging tunnels into this cone, so to speak, mm -hmm. exploring the multiple ways in which we can, you know, traverse it's different levels. So, and that is the other uh, idea that I presented in the book. Um, Bergson teaches that the past is those uh, is, is, is of those who mix their labor with it, right? right? So the more you appropriate your past by digging these tunnels, the more you put yourself in a position to exercise individuality. And that's what I've called the Bergson's alternative labor theory of value. Right. Yes. Right, yeah. There was this um, quotation um, he says, every moment of our life presents, I'm getting this from your book, every moment of our life presents two aspects, actual and virtual, perception on the one side and memory on another. Every moment of life is split up as and when it is positive, or rather it, I guess life, consists in this very splitting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and another point was, um, if you could talk more about this, I, I think this idea of inner, uh, inner diversity um, and as opposed to sort of an outer homogeneity. One of the quotations is, our tendency to form a clear picture of this externality of things, uh, well, is, is the, uh, and the homogeneity of their medium is the same as the impulse which leads us to live in common and to speak. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm, there, there's I, two ideas uh, in what you said. First, um, this uh, whole idea of uh, the, the 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 past duplicating the present. I just, I mean, that is <laughs> admittedly very obscure and. Uh, uh, person have you know people have made fun of person of this theory that the past does not disappear that it's like you know a dimension that we do not are not able to perceive but it's there uh still uh my sense is i, I don't know to what extent my, my sense is that he did believe that like literally but in in any case independently from uh, uh whether, whether you you know believe that, that that's physically correct or not um I guess the effect is uh, of thinking uh, this alternative way of thinking about time um, is that uh, it sort of undermines the idea that of, of a more plain or flat um, relation to the past just through mere images, right? So, um, and, and here, I don't know if, you're, if you've seen this uh, series, Black Mirror. Uh, well, it's a you know, Netflix series. And uh, so there's one episode in which um, 
they propose that there's a digital mechanism which is sort of installed in the brain called the grain and, and that allows them to watch allows people to watch on demand selected scenes of their passes in a film uh, and th their whole life is recorded with their eyes serving as cameras that shoot everything they see and whenever they want they can you know scroll through the grain that's how they call it watching redos uh, either through their own eyes or projecting them whatever uh, projecting them in whatever screen is available so that people other people can see what they recorded through their eyes right so from a personian perspective the past is not really preserved in this uh, example of Black Mirror. Rather, it's, uh, so to speak, a theft to us for the cinematographic illusion of movement. Uh, while we passively sit and watch what the camera, in this case our eyes, uh, have captured, uh, uh, has captured for us, right? But the idea, his idea, is that uh, actually a proper relation to the past is toilsome and is constant and it's by laboring with our past uh, or uh, yeah uh, constantly and 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 you know uh, with all the demands that that has every day not through images that are you know easily seen but um, uh, through an, an toilsome exercise uh, that involves you know effort and expectation activity and passivity engagement and patience uh, that allows us to uh, uh, achieve freedom so his point is that by relating to our past we can create our future and that's what individuality and freedom are ultimately about mm -hmm. um so i guess this point you know aside from this very strange and idiosyncratic theory of the past is that by uh dealing with our past in the proper way not not in the easy way mm -hmm. we can actually uh build our individuality and create our future uh and in in that sense his conception of individuality is individuality as self-creation uh mm -hmm. through a proper relation to our past uh so that that's what's interesting i think right no i i, I see what you're saying and I, I guess before you go to shaler um i think one of the things you point out is that it is um somewhat deflationary in the sense that um it's not just that we have this will that that we can exercise. So that that's a deflationary conception of the of the self. That was that's what you mean. Ah uh, yes. Yeah, and um and, and as if uh, the will, you know, individual will was something simple. And I guess uh, Bergson's point is that, and, and in that, that's why it's not, you know, this individualism, like easy yes. individualism uh, that, you know, perhaps people see in liberal theory or liberalism uh, or in, you know, capitalism and liberalism together. Right. Uh, but it's a more complicated and not easily available conception of individuality. Right. It's a, it's a defense of individuality, but not that typical defense and not one that leads to um, or it's a celebration or a uh, emphasis on on the prominence of individuality without it leading to individualism. Right. I think that's right. Um, and for Sheeler, Shaler, um, this was fascinating and mind blowing. Uh, I guess in my notes, I tried to summarize it saying emotions perceived values. And I don't know if that was an oversimplification, mm -hmm. but that, that was fascinating to me. 
Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, uh, that's correct. So for Shaler, instead of, you know, an emphasis on time, I mean, Shaler knew Bergson and was interested in him, but so for him, the possibility of experiencing inner diversity lies uh, primarily in what he calls perception of value uh, in uh, German Vietnamese. So his view is that we perceive values uh, just as we perceive, you know, this microphone, this uh, glass of water, uh, through our emotions, through our feelings. And in that sense, uh, uh, emotions or feelings are sort of, you know, like, um, yeah, perceptors of uh, something that wouldn't be available uh, for us if we didn't have this um, uh, dimension of experience, which is the you know, uh, emotional, uh, our emotional dimension. So um, uh, for him, there is a hierarchy of values from he, he's very schematic. He's a, in, in that sense, very old fashioned author. Mm -hmm. uh, and he proposes a hierarchy of values from the more material to the more, to the spiritual uh, dimension uh, and, and the parallel stratification of our emotional life, according to, uh, according to which different uh, types of feelings correspond to different spheres of value. So at each level, uh, uh, feelings are, as I said, receptor organs with which we perceive the uh, corresponding values. And the importance of this hierarchy um, lies in Shaler that uh, for Shaler in that uh, individuality becomes possible only through the proper ident identification of the different ranks of value. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's that's his idea. Let's. Uh, um, so individuality was one um, agency, freedom. Um, just proceeding through your uh, through your excellent book. Uh, the if we go to agency, um, chap in chapter two, uh, I thought uh, let's talk about Kant, and um, maybe you could tell the listeners about the gallows man example and awareness of the art and your alternative <laughs> awareness. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I don't know to what extent are uh, the, the listeners are gonna be uh, familiar with Kant. So perhaps I can clarify first Kant's views. Um, uh, so what that we can show how then um, what I propose in the book based on Bergson uh, offers a different route to morality based on the phenomenon of temptation. Right. So. Uh, Kant uh, famously held that morality um, reveals us freedom as a fact. So we know uh, the moral law first, and then we know ourselves to be free. Uh, that is why morality, according to Kant, is the ratio cognoscendi of freedom, right? Uh, freedom, in turn, in his view, makes morality possible because it is our capacity to reject our empirically determined interest, that is inclination, uh, drives, uh, in favor of a moral course of action. Right. So he says that freedom is the ratio essendi of morality. And Kant illustrates his theory um, with an example of a man who is demanded by his prince on pain of immediate execution uh, to give false testimony against a, an honorable person whom the prince could like to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Right. So this man, famously known as the gallows man, is like everybody else, empirically determined by uh, multiple desires and instinct. Uh, yet, uh, Kant says, when our man is presented with the prince's mortal threat, he's capable of overcoming what, determ uh, what determines uh, him empirically, because as soon as he becomes aware of his duty, duty to save the man uh, who's about to be, be killed uh, by the prince, he discovers freedom. 
mm-hmm. right? And that is Kant's famous awareness of the art, uh, the famous fact of reason, which obliges us and at the same time makes us discover uh, our freedom. And in that sense, freedom is uh, forced upon us, he says. We, we ought and therefore we can. And thus, as the example shows, freely we do. So what I do in the book is I propose a different reading of Kant's mini story, uh, mm-hmm. which I approach a bit narratively. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it's a vignette, really, in Kant, not a full story, but I, I approach it like uh, narratively as a sort of criminal case uh, with Kant as a main witness telling us what happened, what, what the prince commanded, the mental state that the gallows man was in, as if um, we had to determine, like a detective or a member of the jury, what really happened there with the gallows man. Mm. Um, so according to my interpretation, in which I use Bergson's phenomenological approach to human action based on intuition, um, and again, trying to read Kant's uh, report as closely as possible. The gallows man discovers freedom not through the categorical character of the moral law, as Kant, uh, mm-hmm. Kant's own interpretation uh, proposes, mm-hmm. but through the extent to which he experiences his own capacity for action. So um, if you agree, uh, I guess we can perhaps review very, very quickly for the audience uh, the few lines that I focus on uh, uh, in Kant. So yeah. uh, just a very quick, uh, brief quotation. So Kant says that once a prince has threatened the gallows man, um, uh, we can ask him, so the gallows man, whether if his prince demanded on pain of the same immediate execution that he give false testimony against an honorable man whom the prince would like to destroy under a plausible pretext. He would consider possible to overcome his love of life, however great it may be. He would perhaps not venture to assert whether he would, it, he would do it or not, but he must admit without hesitation that it would be possible for mm. him. Mm. He judges therefore that he can do something because he's aware that he ought to do it and cognizes freedom within him, mm-hmm. which without the moral law would have remained unknown to him. So that that's end of the quote. Um, so Thank notice you. then that there seems to be a chronological priority of the gallows man unhesitating awareness of his agency. He must first admit without hesitation that it would be possible for him to sacrifice himself and therefore he judges that he can do it. Um, so I could, therefore I can. Right. And only later he judges that he can do it because he ought to do it. Right. The famous, I ought, therefore I can. So I play with the idea that there is an awareness of the could prior uh, to the famous awareness of the ought. And that's the whole idea that it's our awareness of, of to, uh, that we can do something that are in that sense, the, the feeling that we're tempted to do something mm-hmm. that allows us to discover freedom. Of course, in this case, uh, uh, the gallows man is uh, tempted by, not by, you know, a driver or, or an inclination in the normal sense of the word. The relevant, ex- the relevant experience of temptation here is uh, to save an innocent person. So the gallows man is a martyr uh, because he's tempted by justice. And that is the first categorical experience, so to speak, uh, that we can get uh, uh, in, in the example. So it's a reinterpretation of Kant's own example mm-hmm. that I propose following Bergson's theory of morality to say that uh, temptation is the ratio cognizant your freedom um, uh, because it's enjoys uh, phenomenologically speaking um, a, a prior uh, status right 
uh, you refer to a phenomenology of temptation, a phenomenology of hesitation. There's that moment when the agent realizes um, that, okay, the prince is commanding me to do this and I could not. Is it, is it is that momentary pause there? Yeah, is is the, the realization that we could actually disobey the prince and save the man, right? Not out of sense of duty, but you know, out of sense of possibility. Right? It's a, in in I can save that man, and therefore I I I, I, I do it. And I mean, normally when we think about temptation, we for instance, when we think about addiction, uh, we think of uh, that as a, you know, very oppressive and uh, yeah, something that traps you in a way. And my point in the in this chapter is to show that, of course, I mean, that's of course true temptation and in the sense of, <clears throat> sorry, addiction and that kind of things, of course, can trap a person and make that person unfree in very horrible ways. But uh, what I want to propose is that temptation is, you know, multiple on the one hand. Yes, it can trap us uh, when, for instance, you know, you're addicted to something. But on the other hand, it can make you feel your agency. Mm. The, the fact that you're not determined by your drive, that there is some sort of hesitation, that there's some sort of margin. Mm -hmm. And in that moment of hesitation, that moment of temptation, in that sense, uh, you can feel your agency uh, even if, of course, if temptation is, um, you know, um, if, if you fall and uh, you miss that moment of hesitation and you become addicted in a um, more, you know, oppressive way, then, of course, that, that, that's lost. But that, that's the idea. That, that's very helpful. Thank you. I, I want to move to chapter three. I don't want to. There's so much in chapter three. Uh, the morality of uncertainty um, I could you tell us about uh, maybe Bergson and the virtual instinct fabulation, another mind blowing. Yeah. So, um, well, let me perhaps tell you first. So the, the main ideas of a chapter, the ma the main idea, and then I can go on, on ahead Sunday. to and uh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then I can talk a little bit Great. about virtual instinct. Perfect. So. Um, the idea is that uh, uncertain for Bergson, and here I'm, I'm, I'm still talking about Bergson, uh, uncertainty provides a kind of opportunity for agency, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a condition of possibility for, uh, uh, for agency. And uh, this means two things. First, um, the idea that reality, what surrounds us, uh, sort of mirrors the human agents, uh, agent. And so uncertainty as a characteristic of reality provides an opportunity to model our agency in a more dynamic, less determined way. So reality as something uncertain gives some flexibility to our agency. Mm -hmm. um, another way of putting this is uncertainty would offend a completely defined and established personality uh, for which only the categorical would be apt. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, contingency is not necessarily embarrass an embarrassing match for what remains supple and unfinished anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's the idea, first idea. Second idea is that different ways of understanding uncertainty allow us to model our, agent, our agency differently, right? So a moderate approach to uncertainty allows us to forge an identity capable of uh, relying both on habit and improvisation uh, and, and in that sense, remain flexible. Right. So those are the main uh, ideas uh, of, the, of the chapter. And then the part of uh, on virtual instinct. So uh, what Bergson says is that an animal 
uh, um, you know, a non-human animal has only instinct. And therefore there is some, something no, that in, in a way there's no uncertainty for, for this animal. Mm -hmm. uh, but when uh, we have intelligent animals, intelligent in the sense of, uh, you know, having language um, and therefore not relying on instinct only, uh, then uh, in a way that um, it, 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 because we are intelligent, uh, uncertainty appears, right? Uncertainty as the gap between our expectations and our plans and reality. And Bergson's idea is that uh, for these uh, kind of animals, intelligent animals, in the sense of, you know, having language, so human animals, mm -hmm. um, uh, we have, we don't have instinct in that sense, in the sense of animals, but we have virtual instinct. And uh, such an instinct, he says, will allow us to cope or deal with the discouragement uh, in action yes. that fo that yes. follows from the, uh, you know, limits of rational insight into mm. the future, yes. right? So virtual instinct is sort of like the, 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 what we have instead of, you know, the proper animal instinct mm. that allows us to cope with that disappointment. And he says, well, for, you know, his here at Bergson deals with all this literature of, you know, anthropology uh, dealing with, you know, uh, primitives, um, quote unquote, right. People, uh, which was, you know, a very uh, uh, strong in, at the time. And he says, well, you know, this, primitive people, again, uh, uh, quote unquote, are not right. that different from, you know, modern civilized people, right. because we all have this virtual instinct, uh, although in different ways. Uh, for primitive people, again, uh, quote unquote, right. yep. um, uh, you know, there's, you know, this myth-making uh, uh, faculty, this idea of think about taboos, this fabulation, uh, this sort of myths and fabulations that allow them to make sense of the world. And from, you know, civil, from the point of view of civilized man, as he, as he you know, using mm -hmm. the language of the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, uh, that seems ridiculous or preposterous, but actually uh, we are very much like them. That's what Bergson says. And our conception of chance he offers a very interesting analysis of our conception of chance and how it's actually very similar to, you know, the, 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 uh, it, it performs a very similar function uh, as the, the, the taboos, for instance, in primitive people. And, and the idea is that chance, even if we like to think that it's, you know, very scientific and statistics and all that kind of thing, is actually a sort of half personal uh, yes. a, a concept, a half personal idea that allows us to relate to uh, uncertainty in a more personal way. So when right. we say, oh, you were very lucky, luck yes. was with you. Yeah. Um, we sort of personify the it's idea our... of chance or fortune. Well, actually, fortuna is, you know, the more uh, uh, clearly personal conception of, of, of chance in that sense. And he said, if, if you, if you, if you see how modern civilized people use the word chance, you see that it, it's like a partner, it's like a peer, like something that comes with you and that allows you to relate to uncertainty in a more personal human way. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yeah, so it's- It's it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. mystic cause for the quote unquote civilized. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, exactly. I, and I will leave this to the, listeners to to read the book but i'll just there was this really nice turn of phrase first of all you introduced the french philosopher and poet jean-marie guillou mm -hmm. and um i'll just 
leave chapter three with this quote of yours. While chance gives rise to expectations and predictions, risk, the wild twin brother of chance, always elicits our love or our aversion. <laughs> that was a very nice turn of phrase. Guillou will be talking about risk instead of chance. Yeah, yeah, Guillaume, I mean, it's, it's a very obscure personality and figure, but uh, I use him to con contrast his idea of risk with person's idea of chance mm -hmm. and, and to show how uh, if our approach to uncertainty is not moderate, right? if risk, contingency, and insecurity are given a preeminent focus in, in you know, personal and political thought, uh, when they are turned into the main problems to be addressed, uh, we are usually left with you know, two options, either total insurance against risk uh, yeah. at the cost of liberty so thinks of think of Hobbes's Leviathan mm -hmm. or you know the absurdity of experiencing risk for the mere joy of it right. uh, and and uh, what, what I'm what I propose that Bergson's conception of chance offers us a more moderate uh, uh, way to approach uncertainty right um, oh boy um, let's see I'd really like to spend time on chapter four, which is uh, Shaler's conception of sympathy versus Smith's. But I think we have um, so little time. Let's move on to chapter five on mm -hmm. authority. Um, how can a person who has this inner diversity be bound by authority? Yeah, so um, the last chapter is a reflection. Well, it's 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 an effort to answer that question, right? Like, uh, what is uh, what kind of authority is best suited to address the individual uh, in in Bergson and Shaler's sense, uh, the individual that is uh, you know understand as multiple. Uh, not the you know liberal individual understand that understood as uh, you know having only a will or a will uh, and um, my my answer is that um, uh, the best way of understand the the the, the best the, the the kind of authority that that is best suited to, to, to address this individual is not that of the law but that of another person. Mm -hmm. And by this, I do not, do not, do not want to say that uh, the law cannot properly address us, um, but that we would be losing something very important if we neglected personal authority. Right. So this yields a conception of personal authority that, you know, compared to Bavarian rational authority, or perhaps more recently, uh, you know, for political philosophers or legal philosophers, Ras, uh, Ras's epistemic authority is allegedly better at speaking to us meaningfully, more yeah. persuasively, more compellingly as an authority. And um, that corresponds to their personalist uh, outlook. And that, I mean, it's, it's a conception of authority called, um, or yeah, known as exemplarity. Um, and of course, I mean, today, uh, I don't think I need to say much about right. uh, the dangers associated with personalist politics, right? Today, we hear a lot about charismatic authority and how democracies die, populism, the dangers associated with strong men, and all the lessons we should remember to avoid tyranny, right? So all that's real. Um, but my interest in exemplarity and in the specifically in the figure of Imitatio Christi, uh, 
uh, that they both uh, explore um, and analyze and use as a pedagogical resource that can teach us how to emulate admirable, exemplary people who exert an extraordinary pull on others is that in the midst of all the fears associated with charismatic and personal authority, we might very well lose sight of the fact that democracy also depends in crucial yes. ways mm. on these type of figures, right? right? And actually, I mean, many people have indicated this uh, uh, within the you know, traditional political thought. A lot of people have talked about the importance of moral pioneers in you know, one of the drivers of change in the ethos of society, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, um, so, for instance, very recently, Naomi Klein in her book On Fire acknowledges the superpower of Greta Thunberg, right, uh, in order yeah. to uh, spark sure. uh, uh, the green movement and mm -hmm. worries uh, um, uh, climate change and all that kind of thing. Um, but uh, and of course, the classic example is Rousseau's figure of the legislator, uh, without which the foundation of a truly just political community would be impossible. And when I look for in, in, in Shaler and Bergson's uh, respective conceptions of exemplarity is to show that liberalism would only at its own peril deny the anthropological, moral, and political importance of those figures who in uh, famous, uh, the famous words of Rousseau can compel without violence and persuade without convincing, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. that that's the interest. Right. And um, uh, th then that leads us to, um, I, there are lots of great you, you talk about an ethics of imitation um the shaler's defense of an elusive aristocracy um could you spend a moment of all these on bergson's uh, modern defense of ostracism which i thought was very interesting yeah so um and, and on the value of humility i guess yeah, so perhaps I, I, I can say something about this uh, ethics of imitation or emulation that I identify both in Bergson and Schiller, and which I think, uh, I mean, going back to your point about individualism, um, are, you know, especially apt corrective to that kind of problem. So think of um, perhaps our audience um, has heard this uh, term of ethics of authenticity that yes. Charles Taylor articulated in the 90s. And uh, his idea that was, was that, you know, of course, modern individualism and, you know, the narcissism and competitiveness and um, egoism that goes with that is very troubling. And, uh, you know, we have to think about that. But uh, Taylor's idea was that there is an ethics, uh, a, 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 an, an important moral ideal behind that individualism that needs to be needs to be recovered in order to understand the force of individualism. Mm. Right. And his point was there's like a good version of it uh, that needs to be recovered so that we can actually be properly guided by it. And that was his ethics of authenticity, the idea that, you know, each one of us is trying to uh, become what, like what, what, what oneself truly is, right? Um, and to to find or build, perhaps I don't know what the right word is, uh, our our own authentic, unique, personal self. Uh, and interestingly, what I find in Bergson and Shaler is a sort of ethics of emulation that tries to find a way, uh, uh, you know, of 
moral growth and um, a, a, a way to individuality by, well, uh, so um, tries to find individuality by way of imitating another. Yeah. And um, which is that, what we do in, indeed. Yes. I mean, right. on, on the one hand, uh, today with social media and all that, like a lot of followers, that was what you want to, what you want to have, but that's what you are as well. So yeah. you might better find the right way of following and the right way of imitating others. And uh, their, their point um, is that by way of emulating, like rightly emulating other people, which of course doesn't mean copying their way exactly, uh, or literally, but, you know, entails an exercise of, you know, an analogy, like what would whatever, whoever do in my situation, right? Of course, you're not Jesus, you're not Napoleon, you're not uh, Greta Thunberg, but what would that person do in my case? And that exercise uh, they propose uh, combines um on the one hand, an acceptance, humility, and acceptance of personal authority and the the existence of exemplary people. On on the other hand, it's an exercise of, you know, applying that that example to your situation. And in that sense, getting to know yourself and your own particular situation, but in a humble, more humble way. Um, And in a way you can really feel as opposed to a rational law. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, in a way that you can uh, identify with in your personally, yes. uh, instead of following, you know, rule of thumb or a general rule, right. which again doesn't mean that there is no place for general rules or laws or whatever. That that's right. that's not my point. The point is that there is some dimension of experience that would only be able to uh, that, that that can can only be addressed by other people um, or the example of other people. So yeah, I think that's interesting, especially. In the, con- in the context of where, where individualism still is a concern, uh, just as right. in the 90s with Taylor. Right. And I think it's an interesting alternative. I mean, I, I really like Taylor and his idea that we need to actually bring forth where the, the, for where the, the best version of that individualism. But perhaps this is an actually, you know, um, it, it's an interesting alternative way, uh, um, the ethics of emulation that we yeah. could try in order to address that individualism. Right, it's fascinating. The book is The Belief in Intuition, Individuality, and Authority in Henri Bergson and Max Shaler. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Professor Alfaro. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure for me.